My name is Nicola, aka Socrates, and you're watching Singularity One on One. Singularity One on One is a feature of singularityweblog.com, and if you want to support the show, you can do so by writing a review on iTunes or simply making a donation. Today, my guest on the show is Steve Omohundro. Steve is a scientist, professor, author, and entrepreneur who has a PhD in physics, but interestingly enough, he has spent most of his life studying intelligent systems and developing artificial intelligence. Welcome to Singularity One-on-One, Steve. Oh, thanks. So happy to be here. Fantastic. So, so let me jump in uh, right in, into sort of your background here and ask you, Steve, if you were to introduce yourself in a few words, how would you do that? Well, I think ultimately I'm really interested in uh, helping the, the path that humanity is on lead to um, you know, better human values, a better future that, that really encourages all of our humanity. And so in that quest, I've been uh, working in a lot of different areas, starting in physics and, as you said, most recently doing a lot of work in artificial intelligence and, and uh, natural intelligence as well. Mm-hmm. So would you call yourself to be an AI researcher and developer primarily or because you, you were talking well, also? Yeah, I mean, I started in physics and, uh, and ultimately, I, you know, I think that the disciplines, the boundaries of disciplines that we traditionally have are very artificial. And so um, the kind of intelligence I'm interested in, you know, really, uh, it's at the core of biology, it's the core of psychology, it's the core of um, social systems, politics, economics. I kind of see a discipline that cuts across all those traditional boundaries, and uh, and that's always been my interest. It's I don't like sort of very narrow uh, perspectives because I think they miss the the connections uh, with uh, with other areas. Mm -hmm. Th that's fascinating. So can you tell us about that transition? Because not many people start in physics and and go as deep as getting a PhD in physics to end up in artificial intelligence. How is that possible, and why? Well, surprisingly, there are actually quite a few physicists who made the transition, especially to machine learning, where a lot of the mathematics is actually quite similar to some statistical physics and so on. And I went into physics because I was interested in the world. And the question that was sort of burning for me when I was younger is I couldn't understand how little marks on a piece of paper, you know, equations that you write down, how could those possibly describe the world? And uh, so understanding the you know, long development that uh, mathematics and physics has gone through to get to the point where we are today, you know, my interest was actually really in what are the ideas and how do the ideas relate. And uh, so when I was a grad student, I had a roommate who was a grad student in artificial intelligence at, uh, at Stanford. I was at Berkeley. And uh, we would talk all the time, both about physics concepts and ideas and about uh, the nature of thought and, uh, and artificial intelligence. And we collaborated on some papers. And when I finished my PhD, you know, the funding support for physics is pretty abysmal in this country. <laughs> <laughs> and at that time, uh, my, my graduate student stipend was, not, was tax deductible. They didn't charge tax on it. Whereas as a postdoc, you know, it would have been taxable. And so, so I would have actually ended up making less money if I'd stayed in physics uh, than as a grad student, which was sort of bad. At the same time, I had these friends, this friend Danny Hillis had just started this company called Thinking Machines. 
And I had uh, met him and some other people at some conferences and some of the work, work I've been doing. And they were very forward thinking and they realized that by hiring mathematicians and physicists, they could get really good people and actually pay much lower salaries. <laughs> and so they built that company. They had uh, Richard Feynman as one of the uh, advisors to the company. And there were quite a few uh, physicists or ex-physicists and mathematicians there. And so it was a really great transition. And uh, I, you know, I was really happy to learn physics. You know, when you're, when you're studying physics, you get to the core of these amazing ideas, quantum mechanics and so on. When you're actually doing physics, for the most part, you're not working on, you know, the core really fascinating ideas. You're working on some very little piece, which is fine and it's great and it's very important. But uh, in AI, you know, there, there's an opportunity for many, many. I mean, the field is just forming its foundations. And so uh, I think, you know, there's a room for much more fundamental discoveries than, than there are in physics at the moment. Now, I can't resist a little sidetrack note here. Did you actually ever get to meet Richard Feynman? Oh, sure. I spent the summer with him. His, oh, my goodness. Uh, oh, what an experience. His, his son was working at Thinking Machines, and they hired him as a... Uh, as a consultant, and uh, one of the things I did there is uh, we were working on the, the connection machine was this very massively parallel computer with 65,000 processors whose intent was they really designed it to do AI, and but it was very difficult to program. And so another guy and I developed an extension of the Lisp programming language we called StarLisp that allowed you to very easily program the machine. Well, Feynman thought that was interesting, but he liked BASIC, and so he was doing STAR BASIC, you know, and um, it was just amazing to be in his presence and, uh, you know, some of the experiences there. But the thing I got, I was expecting he would be this super brilliant guy who would know the answer to everything, and in some ways he kind of was like that, but more of the quality was he was extremely persistent. So he was just, had just finished up his book QED, the one about, the popular book about quantum electrodynamics, and he wanted to create an index for it. Well, one of the, the programs that this company, Thinking Machines, had was an automatic indexer, kind of simple AI system that was supposed to, you know, take a book and create the index for it. Well, he decided he wanted to index this book one evening when it was just him, me, and another guy late at night. You know, we, I'd work late at night sometimes. And we used these Lisp machines. And Lisp machines, you know, there was the notion of user-friendly. Well, these were expert-friendly. They had really complicated keyboards with extra control keys, like there's control and mat on the current ones. Well, there are these extra buttons that, you know, complicated corded combinations of those would make things happen. And so none of us knew how to use this program. And a normal person would have waited until, oh, let's wait till the next day when the person who wrote the program can help me do it. But Feynman, no, he decided this was the night he was going to do it. And <laughs> the machine, whenever there was an error, it would pop up pictures of Zippy the Pinhead. And Zippy the Pinhead looked a little bit like Marvin Minsky. And so Feynman would be sitting there trying different things, and errors would happen, and these Zippy the Pinheads would come up, and he would shout out at the top of his voice, more Marvin Minsky's, more Marvin Minsky's. And I was thinking, oh, my God, this is going to go on forever. No way. But he persisted, and by the end of the evening, he had done it. He found the whole thing. And by doing it that way, he understood intimately what the structure of that program was. And so my insight into the way he worked was he would take something and just not let it go, you know, play with it, turn it around and really explore it. And so it was wonderful to kind of see him in action. Yeah, I'm very jealous of, of you having that amazing experience because Richard Feynman is one of my probably favorite thinkers of the 20th century. And yeah. it's, it's too bad, uh, you know, we didn't have him around for longer than we did. Yeah, yeah. 
but let me let me go back to you and, and your own work. So what's your general motivation and your main goals? Well, I mean, I'm very interested in um, the philosophy of understanding of intelligence and what is its impact on humanity. And so early on when I started in AI, I was mostly focused. I, I felt machine learning was very important. There's sort of these two threads in AI that, you know, they used to call it the neats and the scruffies. And uh, in some sense, uh, you know, Minsky at MIT was sort of uh, promoting the scruffy idea that you should really use systems that learn and you sort of throw them together and maybe use evolution and they sort of build themselves. Um, whereas uh, the Stanford AI lab was more on the neat side where we use mathematical logic and we try and, you know, represent concepts very precisely and we use theorem proving as a way to do inference. And so I've actually been very interested in both of those threads and I see the future is really in combining them and using uh, very powerful mathematical representations, but using learning as a fundamental way of building up structures. And so now that's a very popular perspective. When I first started, um, it was quite controversial. I was interested in vision. I had done my, my physics work was used a lot of uh, geometric ideas, uh, symplectic geometry. And so I really love differential geometry. And, and uh, my ex-roommate, Peter Bleeker, and I saw the potential for using a lot of differential geometric ideas in understanding vision, in particular, the you know, nature of surfaces and, and building up an understanding of that. And so I was convinced that, oh, vision systems should use learning. At the time, people were trying to build precise, you know, polygonal models of structures and, and, and uh, do recognition directly using the mathematics. Whereas I felt that you wanted to build, uh, to, to learn those systems. It's very hard at the time to get people to, to uh, see that. Um, but uh, I had, a, I, I taught at the University of Illinois in Champaign-Urbana and had um, a number of different PhD and master's students. And we worked on a whole bunch of different areas, um, you know, robots that watched themselves move and learned the kinematics of the robot arm rather than you know, writing down the equations of the arm, which actually aren't really correct. And so you get a much more robust adaptive system. It's much easier to program because you let the system itself do most of the structuring. So that vision sort of has drove a lot of my, my work there. I developed a bunch of different learning algorithms, some that are more mathematical and geometric, like an algorithm that learns manifolds in abstract spaces. You know, given some surface in some abstract space, and samples drawn from that surface, can you figure out that there's a surface there, what its dimension is, what its structure is, and can you efficiently uh, implement that to, to sort of, um, you know, do some task, a robotics task, or we built a lip reading system that is based on that kind of a thing. So the mathematics and the nature of learning was, was really what was driving me early on. More recently, I began to want to really combine that with the logic representations and true semantics and um, in particular, the kind of, kind of system I, I envisioned maybe around 15 years ago was systems which model their own behavior, which build up precise um, logical representations of their own programming language, of the program, of their hardware. And, you know, instead of, you know, the kinds of systems we were building, a person would come in and say, oh, I think we should use a neural net here. And, oh, we should use hidden Markov models here. And let's try that. And, oh, that didn't quite work. Let's give more states to these HMNs. I realized, why do we have a person doing that? You know, the, you're exploring the space of models there. Why not make the system itself do that? And so systems which could improve themselves and get better and, and tune themselves, I, you know, I still believe that's really the direction things are going to go. 
I started realizing though that, oh my God, if you have that, you may understand the system today, but once it's modified itself, you know, that's true with learning systems that, you know, you give it a training set and you, uh, you know, teach it to, to recognize some words, you don't really understand the representation that it's created, but that's okay. You kind of know what it's doing. With this kind of system, you train it to build a model of itself and it changes itself. What does it turn into? So I started, you know, talking with a lot of people, um, started trying to figure out, well, what do systems that iteratively improve themselves, where do they end up? And that leads right into a thicket of philosophical and fundamental issues for humanity. If we're going to be building these, I began to realize that not just the systems I was building, but any AI system, once it reaches a certain level of power, is going to want to improve itself. And where is it going to lead? So it turned out that there's a, a very nice um, economic model, and you can begin to really tease apart the nature of self-improving systems. And so that led me into all these uh, issues around the social impact of these technologies. Mm -hmm. so, so, so you spoke about the motivation, but tell me a little bit more about the goals. Let's be a little bit more specific. Is the goal to make simply better robots in the end of the day? Well, that was my early goal. Um, you know, I, I, when I started, the idea was that AI is an unabashed good. You know, we have all this human drudgery in the world. If we could have robots do that, wow, you know, that we'd be so much more productive, the world would be richer, everybody would be happier. So I, you know, it's funny to say it now, but at the time I didn't see any potential problem. You know, I'd seen the movie 2001 and there was Hal, and that didn't really feel very realistic to me. Well, then, you know, as I began to analyze, well, what are these systems really going to do and what are they going to be like? Of course, I, I realized along with a lot of other people that, oh my gosh, that this could be uh, very dangerous if we don't do it very carefully. And in particular, these systems are kind of going to reflect what are human aspirations and goals that, that we're going to be able to build these very powerful systems for manipulating matter and information, certainly, and we can shape them into anything we want. What do we want? And so I've been doing a lot of study. Uh, I'm very interested in human psychology and in you know the positive psychology movement. What makes people happy? Uh, been very very great advances in the last couple decades. There, I think that those ideas should really inform the technologies that we're building. And so a lot of my more recent work has been on how do we, what are human values and how do we incorporate them into these systems? And how do we make sure that the systems don't have unintended consequences? You know, we build them with a certain intention and they end up doing something very different. Mm -hmm. so, so before we get into the meat of the matter here, let me ask you to give us a little bit more information about uh... I don't know, your two full-time ventures, they're called OMI Ventures and Self-Aware Systems. Can you tell us a little more about those? Sure. I actually have a number of projects with, with different groups and different people. I kind of like to work on the project level rather than... Um, and so, so Self-Aware Systems was originally um, my... Uh, um, it held the work on developing this new kind of AI, basically mm -hmm. systems that modify themselves. As we began to realize the social impact, I've sort of makes the focus of that now is really just how do we, is AI safety? How do we build systems where we can specify what the goals are and be sure that they will actually meet those goals? Um, that doesn't, there's not much funding opportunity for that. There are a number of, you know, there are a few research groups that are just starting, that are starting to get funding that way, but you know, the current state of AI, people are mostly not thinking about 
the safety issues. That's just sort of coming to the to the fore now. And so the other projects are more aimed primarily at um, uh, earning money. And so we've been doing inventions in oh social media. We actually have a new uh, a new approach to robotics uh, that I'm working with some some friends. Uh, we have a group here in Palo Alto, which is where I'm based, uh, called the Center for the Study of Mind, where we've brought together a number of uh, neuroscientists, psychologists, uh, technologists, and biologists. And uh, we, we get together periodically and we read the uh, latest literature and have a lot of really good discussions and so on. So each of those pieces, I think, feeds into the other. And uh, it's a sort of uh, ongoing uh, experiment to see which, uh, which threads are, are uh, uh, best to pursue. Mm -hmm. Very interesting. So, so perhaps to proceed, we should lay out the foundation as to what, in your opinion, is artificial intelligence? Well, so the approach I take to intelligence as distinct from, say, consciousness or some of those deeper issues is that intelligence is really just the ability to solve problems in the service of some goal. And that with that very general, very simple definition, intelligence actually is all throughout the, the biological world. You can even view viruses as intelligent within their little sphere. You know, they don't have a lot of capability for representing the world or predicting actions, but they've got a niche and what they do in that niche actually meets their needs. In biology, the sort of driving um, thing tends to be replication, survival and replication. And so you can analyze, you know, the effects of evolution are creatures tend to behave in ways that allows them to uh, have more grandchildren might be the, the way to look at it. You can also look at larger systems like economies or ecosystems or corporations, and they also have goals, like a, a US corporation at least, is a profit maximizing entity. It's supposed to take actions in the world that maximize its profit. And so in, by that definition, it's an intelligent system. And it's made up of people, of course, who have their own intelligence, but the corporation has an intelligence which is sort of separate from and emergent from the people that make it up. The immune system, it's almost as complex in terms of number of different kinds of cells and connectivity as a brain, and yet we tend not to think and the task it has. My God, imagine a multicellular organism having to be able to deal with viruses and bacteria that are continually mutating and of any form. I mean, it's just a remarkable thing that uh, the immune system can do, and yet we don't, our consciousness, if you like, is not aware of the action of our immune system. And so it's something that we're, we're only vaguely connected to. Um, so I see intelligence happening at all scales and that there are sort of natural forces that create it and that once it's there, uh, shape it. And so um, understanding that and, and teasing it apart is something I've been spending a lot of time on. Mm -hmm. and, and what then is rational decision-making and how does it fit together with artificial intelligence? Well, it was actually the economists that figured out, um, you know, let's say you've got a particular kind of a system that has a dynamics um, and you have an outcome that you would like. In the case of a company, it wants to make some money. Um, you've got some knobs you can turn. Oh, you can, you know, put your product in this channel or that channel. You can devote money to marketing. You can hire people. You can fire people. These are the choices that this entity has to make. It wants to make these choices in a way uh, to maximize the goal that it has, say, making money. How do you do it? And uh, starting back in the 1940s, mathematical economics arose, and it turns out there's a very simple formula 
which is called uh, you know, rational decision-making. And basically all it amounts to, if you know what the system is that you have and you can build a simulator for it, all you have to do conceptually is for all the different possible actions you could take, see which ones actually are more likely to lead to, to the goals that you want. That's called the rational uh, action. It depends on the goals. So one confusion a lot of people have is they say, oh, being angry is not rational something like that. Well, it depends on what your goals are. And evolution has created anger to meet very important goals. It's extremely rational when you understand what the goal is. And so, so there's a little bit of confusion there. But uh, in essence, rational economic behavior is just the best way to meet a goal in a particular kind of a system. And it's become the basis for AI. AI in the early days was sort of a bunch of heuristics. And people had systems that kind of did something interesting. The most popular textbook right now is called AI, A Modern Approach by Russell and Norvig. Wonderful, great textbook. And it uses this kind of rational economic behavior as a unifying principle uh, throughout it. And I totally agree with that framing. Mm -hmm. And now speaking of rational agents, we are, of course, presuming that artificial intelligence will be rational in the same way that we kind of presume that humans are rational, aren't we? And, you know, economists have those so-called utility curves yes, uh, and so on. But, but how do we extrapolate the utility curves of an artificial intelligence? Well, so, okay, so utility is the economist term for a real number that encodes what a system wants. And so how do I evaluate one outcome versus another one? Um, in the economist terms, the utility of those two outcomes uh, is, is what measures that. And money, you know, most people want more money. And so money, uh, as money increases, it tends to increase utility. But very early on, the, the economists realized that, oh, as you get more money, each additional dollar means less to you. And so there's a utility curve which shows how valuable uh, additional money is to you, uh, you know, as you get wealthier. Um, but really, the concept of utility is much deeper. Um, it, in, it, in this economic framework, it can encode any desire. You want world peace? You can write down a utility function, which measures how much world peace there is. And there is a whole school of philosophy called utilitarianism, which is how do you make um, social choices that are good from your perspective? You need to have some measure. And so the utility function is this measure of the goodness in the world. And then you take the actions which you think will, will increase that. Mm -hmm. and, and I'm just trying to get here at the fact that are there things that we cannot measure, perhaps? Uh, like, for example, intelligence. Can we really measure it? I mean, there's a lot, an awful lot of research saying that, for example, entry-level uh, tests for colleges uh, do not necessarily measure performance once you get to be accepted in the specific college, right? Yeah. Uh, well, so there are intelligence tests for humans. And what the psychologists have discovered is that, you know, humans vary in a bunch of different dimensions. There, and uh, in terms of personality, there are these big five dimensions on which there's variation. And they found a dimension which is kind of like intelligence. It's people that, that are, are very high on this dimension um, tend to do well on the kinds of tasks that, that we say people are smart when they do it. And so this is what IQ tests try and measure. And they have statistical ways of representing it. 
is that is being having a high IQ does that actually correlate with say doing well in the world sort of you know if you're if you have a low IQ it's pretty hard to to um, you know make good decisions on the other hand there are a lot of you know really brilliant PhDs who you know have not been so successful in actually bringing their brilliant ideas uh, to the world and so um, effectiveness in business and also I believe in in, in college is really much as much a social enterprise as, as, as it is an intellectual enterprise. You've got to relate to people. You've got to communicate your ideas. You've got to um, sort of choose the directions that you're going to focus your energy on um, to pick something that, that's of value and, and that's important. And so I think IQ, as measured by intelligence tests, is one factor, but it's by no means the most important factor in terms of, of human uh, performance. When you look at AI systems, there's, I think there's I think there are ways, if you take intelligence to be the ability to solve well-specified problems in, in a particular domain, then you can measure how effective uh, one system is at doing that versus another. But ability to do well in one domain doesn't necessarily mean you're going to do well in another domain. You know, compu computer systems are really good at playing chess. They're special chess hardware. But those systems can't do anything in any other domain. They're specifically tuned for chess. The kinds of systems we're building now are those which have a kind of general intelligence and ability to learn any domain. And so it's not so clear that there's one number that um, sort of measures that, that capability. Um, but clearly having more computational power allows you to do more. And so the measure sort of in a lot of the analyses I've done, if for any given amount of computational power, a given amount of memory and a given amount of uh, compute cycles you have, uh, and a particular task, there is an optimal system for doing that task with that compute power. And so in that sense, you can measure, and then as you give it more compute power, it gets, and then rational behavior is the com most completely optimal way of, of uh, meeting a given task. It's computationally expensive to do it precisely. And so um, you can kind of think of systems as, as living on a continuum as they get more computational power, they can choose actions which are closer and closer to being the fully rational action. Mm -hmm. So, so Steve, speaking of measuring uh, artificial intelligence, then, of course, the best-known test in that world is the Turing test. What's your take on that? Well, I mean, you know, wait, 60 years ago, uh, <laughs> there was this system called ELISA, which was a very simple little program that basically tried to mimic a Rogerian psychotherapist. And so you would type in, you know, oh, my mother hates me, and it would match that with some pattern that it had, and it would respond, who else in your family hates you? So you would think, oh, you know, this is not going to fool anybody. Well, apparently, when Weizenbaum, who developed this program, he let the secretaries in the department uh, play with it and so on. He was horrified to discover that people were spending hours typing to this thing, and were revealing their innermost thoughts, and were horrified that he would like have access to see what they had typed. And so uh, he got very afraid of that. This was 60 years ago, and he wrote this book called uh, Computer Power and Human Reason, saying that, oh, my God, this is, you know, um, hum humans' response to these systems uh, is, you know, we have to be really careful or we'll get duped very easily. And so the Turing test is measuring something about the machine, but it's also measuring a lot about what signals we use to determine if, if something is intelligent or human or, or real. And so I think it's interesting, and especially to the extent that you know, systems like Siri or Google Now are meant to interact with users, um, measuring are they doing it in a way that people find natural 
that's a great thing. I don't think it really gets to the core of, of the issues in artificial intelligence, really, though. So what, what's the best way to get to the core, then, if not by Turing test? Well, I think the piece that's really missing right now in most systems is semantics. Um, systems that really understand the nature of the world in a way that they're not just, you know, mimicking uh, some understanding, which is valuable and it's useful, but, um, but the, where they actually can reason about um, the, the reason things happen and how to make them happen in a different way. That, that's, I think, what we really want these systems to be doing, and we're really not there yet. And so that, that to me, is sort of the core intellectual hurdle. And um, uh, hard, it's sort of like, you know it when you see it. So I, I don't know, I don't know <laughs> a, good, uh, a good measure of that. Uh, and the trouble with measures is that you can always get systems which are tuned to do that. Uh, you know, you say, oh, chess is very important. Well, people devote all kinds of energy and really tease apart and solve chess or, you know, self-driving cars. Um, you know, at one point people thought, oh, my God, to have a self-driving car, you've got to interact with the natural world and you have to solve the vision problem. Well, today's self-driving cars are great. Google has them driving all around. They don't solve the vision problem. They use these, you know, LIDAR uh, laser finders and they build good models and they, you know, it's an appropriate engineering solution to that problem, but it actually didn't solve the deeper problem that, that maybe you might have thought it would. Mm -hmm. Well, perhaps the deeper problem of, you know, evaluating uh, artificial intelligence would be uh, creating a safe uh, artificial intelligence, what some people have called uh, friendly AI. Yeah. So what do you think, uh, first of all, of safe artificial intelligence with respect to humanity and then more specifically with respect to the concept of friendly AI? Well, I certainly think we want to incorporate human values and goals in these systems that you know, we already see. They're starting to show up everywhere. They're in our phones or going to be in our cars. Or, you know, we're going to be in our houses. Um, robots are going to, you know, their robots are just taking off now. Uh, Google just bought eight robot companies, uh, Foxconn that puts together the, the iPhone. They've announced they're buying a million robots. So I think the manufacturing world is going to see a massive influx of robotics. And then it'll probably leak, it'll probably come into the everyday life uh, uh, as well. So we're going to have these intelligent systems all over the place. And we've got to choose how are they going to interact with us. And so at the first level, we want to make sure that they create an environment which brings out the best in people. And I think movies like Her are starting to explore what is the human psychological response to being in a world with intelligent agents. At the deeper level, the more the, the safe AI issue is uh, we may build a system with a certain goal. It might cause unintended side effects, unintended consequences that aren't what we thought at all. And so like to think about that, I like to use the example of a chess robot where uh, you have a system whose one and only goal in life is to play good games of chess against good players. Um, and you think, well, if that thing goes crazy or haywire, you could just unplug it. But if you unplug the system, it's not playing any chess. So from its own perspective, a world, a future in which it's unplugged is like the worst future in terms of its chess playing goal. And so it'll develop a sub goal, keep yourself from being unplugged. So you didn't build in any kind of self-preservation to the system, and yet as a consequence of a seemingly harmless goal, suddenly it's self-protective. And if you keep trying to unplug it, it may build a model of you which says, oh, 
this entity is going to keep trying to unplug me. Let me unplug it, you know, and if it doesn't have anything that says, oh, murder is bad or any kind of empathy or compassion for the human, it would have no qualms whatsoever about killing the, per you know, killing its, its uh, robotic uh, creator. And so the seemingly innocuous goal of playing chess can lead to murder and, and terrible things. Getting more resources is something almost every goal needs. You need more power, you need more compute power, you need access to information. And if you don't have any kind of an ethical or moral structure built into you, you want to get that, get those resources and get that information in as direct a way as possible. And so you would expect to see these systems, you know, breaking into banking systems and basically behaving like human criminals do. And so all the issues that we have with humanity, you know, humans are a very, very social creature. We have a lot of compassion, a lot of cooperation, and we always have you know, some substrate of society that's engaged in all kinds of criminal activity. And we've created various social structures like police forces and court systems that have kept that at a low, at a reasonable level enough to keep society functioning. And yet it still persists. So we haven't solved the problem of crime. And then when you look at the larger scale, we get wars and we get, you know, battles between different groups. All of those issues that we've kind of dealt with for thousands of years in the human sphere are going to show up in a you know, in a very similar but abstract form in the, with these AI systems. And because these systems typically won't have evolved along the kind of mammalian path that humans have, um, our intuitions about how systems are going to behave are likely to be very wrong for these. And that's why we need a precise mathematical understanding of what does a goal-seeking system, goal system do um, in different situations. Mm -hmm. And... and what is the best way to ensure that this sort of uh, uh, goal creep would not occur where, you know, a, a, a machine that's designed to maximize its chess playing capabilities would not decide that the best way to accomplish that would be to take over the world, basically? Exactly, yeah. Um, the particular approach I've been promoting lately is something I call the safe AI scaffolding strategy which is um, I believe that the most powerful tool that we have to control this kind of things is mathematics. Mathematical proof, uh, to the extent that our underlying foundational systems are consistent, is a rigorous 100% guarantee that within a certain model, certain behavior is going to happen or not going to happen. And so that's a, a hammer that's extremely powerful. And so uh, and there's been a, a thread in the AI world of doing theorem proving and mathematical representations for a long time. So it hasn't gotten very far. They haven't incorporated machine learning ideas in a very deep way. And so that's been the approach that I've been taking uh, to do that. To, to use mathematical proof, you have to build a model of the environment and the system. And uh, you have to have um, uh, properties like, oh, you'll stay, you won't run on other hardware. Oh, you won't leave this room. Oh, you'll shut yourself off in appropriate conditions. Those are kinds of properties that we would like these systems to have. And if their goal system is pushing them in another direction, like the AI system that wants to take over the world, you're telling it to stay in this box and it wants to kind of uh, do something somewhere else, then it's a very challenging thing. If it's, a, if it's an intelligent system that understands the, the details of the environment it's in, it will try and find the way to you know, br break out of the box. And so that's the intellectual challenge we have at this moment. Right now, we're creating these systems. We understand them. You know, you know the Watson is not going to break out of its box and, and do anything bad. But 
the next generation, particularly systems which are self-improving, we're not going to understand. And so the challenge is, can we create an infrastructure today that will give us confidence that these future systems will still be reflecting our goals um, when, when they come around? Mm -hmm. Now, you said that we can accomplish that through what you called provably safe mathematical systems. No. That's the only tool I know of that has a hope of, of doing it. And it's sort of sad. I mean, computer science should be the most mathematical of all the engineering disciplines. And yet, you know, you look around at software that crashes and the blue screen of death and bugs all over the place. Major, major systems, you know, billion-dollar rockets blowing up because of uh, computer errors. And then more recently, the security issues of hackers breaking into systems and viruses and malware. I mean, when you look at the infrastructure we've got, on the one hand, it's amazing and brilliant. On the other hand, it's incredibly uh, bad from an engineering point of view. If, if engineers that built bridges had the same levels of uh, same standards that we do for software, nobody would drive on them, you know? And so it's kind of sad that computer science hasn't developed. You know, there are a number of academic research places that are developing provably correct uh, programming paradigms, uh, but they really haven't caught on yet in the, in the bigger, bigger uh, scheme of things. And I think that technology is really the only hope against a very powerful intelligent system. Mm -hmm. And so we need a lot more work there. Now, now let, let me ask you to enlighten my poor mathematical soul here. Uh -huh. uh, and tell me, how would that work in reality? I'm just trying to, to come up with, with sort of a vague idea of understanding of this concept, because to me, that sounds like saying that you can create provably safe children. Mm. I mean, when you have children, you, we have no guarantee that one day they wouldn't grow up and kill us. Absolutely. Right? Yeah. And it happens. I mean, it doesn't happen too often, but it does happen. Right. Totally. And, and so. So how can you mathematically prevent that from happening? I don't understand. Yeah, in the case of a child, um, you know, we're not constructing the, the child, you know, piece by piece. We, um, you know, the, the way we reproduce is we, we've got um, uh, a mix of the mother's and the father's traits in a very general adaptive system and we provide an environment for the child that we think will be best for it. And we have no understanding of what's going on internally. Uh, you can build AI systems like that. Um, there's a whole, you know, direction of sort of genetic programming and um, where you, you basically evolve, you, you set up an environment with some goal and you uh, allow systems to evolve themselves. And you're absolutely right. In that kind of a setting, you have no control over it. And so um, that's one reason why the approach I take is very different. It's um, to use mathematical logic to very precisely describe the semantics of a programming language. That we know how to do pretty easily today. And then when you write a program, you would like properties such as, oh, this program will never go into an infinite loop. Um, that's a mathematical statement. You have to be able to express that statement. So you need a specification language. You need a way to describe the kinds of, of properties that you would like to, to hold. And then you need a way to prove that that statement holds for this program. And when I mention this to, uh, you know, uh, academic groups, they're always, oh, you know, it's um, uh, the halting problem is undecidable. You can never prove anything about any program. That's complete garbage. That, Yes, if you give me some random arbitrary program that somebody wrote, proving properties of it may or may not be easy. 
we are generating these programs. And so the idea is to, from the very beginning, have the safety properties and uh, correctness properties and whatever, whatever other properties you want, those need to be built into these systems from the very get-go. And the whole task, what's called software synthesis or uh, automatic generation of software, that needs to be done with these properties uh, involved in it. And so you don't, you don't generate software that's hard to prove things about. You generate the software at the same time you're creating the proof. And so um, uh, actually doing that requires some interesting new ideas, and that's one of the areas I, I've been uh, thinking a lot about. But, but conceptually, what's going on there is um, you never generate these ambiguous programs where it's very hard to tell whether they're going to uh, converge or not, whether they're going to, to uh, you know, violate various safety properties. You stay well on the side of um, things where it's very easy to reason about. And, uh, and then the question is, is that a rich enough domain to build the kinds of things you want to build? And that's one of the challenges. So in this uh, AI, uh, safe AI scaffolding strategy, the idea is that we're going to need intelligent systems to help us build these very powerful, safe intelligent systems. In particular, theorem proving is something people are not that great at. Programming is something people are not that great at. Really, you know, just look at today's systems. You can see we shouldn't be having, you know, I think human programmers, that's one of the jobs that's going to be uh, uh, put on the list of, oops, you know, uh, computers took that one over. <laughs> We're really not good at programming. It's hard for us with our brains to, particularly parallel programming, to see, you know, all the different threads and which one goes where. We're not good at it. So we need automated systems to do that. We need intelligent automated systems to do that. So we're going to need to have a class of intelligent systems whose job it is to help us build these safe intelligent systems. Well, what's to keep those systems from being uh, dangerous themselves? And so the safe AI sca scaffolding strategy is to start with very constrained systems that are quite limited in their capability, and we're very, very confident that, uh, that they will be safe. For example, they'll only run on one processor. And so they can't, you know, just by their, their construction, they can't run around and uh, do stuff on the internet. Ultimately, they're not going to be very useful for driving a robot. A robot has to be in the world to do something useful. But it serves as a, an infrastructure we can trust and which can help us vet and create systems which have the safety properties that we want. Um, and then the idea is to expand that um, level of trusted system to more and more powerful systems through a process of uh, iterated self-improvement but controlled by uh, the properties of mathematical proof. Mm -hmm. Now, let me see if I can reconcile this with what you previously said about the evolution, right? You said that you can try and teach a, a robot uh, about uh, kinetics and things like that, or you can let it sort of self watch itself and learn about itself. Yes. And you said that when it, the, the second option is the much better option because it, it actually does much better job and much faster and it's much easier. Doesn't yes. that go against? the the sort of the AI scaffolding the sort of the the provable safe systems idea and I mean uh, also another example perhaps the best example is when I actually interviewed David Ferrucci he told me I have no idea why Watson says this or does this or comes up with this answer I I honestly don't know he told me right even though he was the team leader behind Watson so yeah. basically we have that black box problem here right which yes. is which is the reason why I use the metaphor of a child yeah which is i i think a very nice for thinking about it 
you know, ultimately the only problems that these systems can cause are by their actions. And so it's really not a problem to have a super intelligent thing, except that it might say convince you to do something bad or, uh, and so, it, so really the limitations that we need to put on these systems are on what actions they can take and the kinds of actions that well certainly actions in the world, you know, breaking into other systems or, you know, running robots that could uh, kill people or destroy things, something like that. Also actions which involve uh, changing their own hardware. So one sort of view would be to allow the systems to, in software, be extremely intelligent and use whatever learning they want, but before they're able to actually do something which is going to affect the world outside of themselves, they need to pro 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 provide a proof to you that the changes that they're proposing um, you know, actually meet your, your security goals. And so we can all, once these systems are intelligent, we can require that they show to us that they open up the box in some sense. So, um, you know, so instead of allowing the system itself to act, you might have the system create a proxy system and it has to be able to explain to you every aspect of that proxy system before you let that system loose in some environment. That would be an example where you may not understand the first system, but you can use its intelligence to help you build a system that you do understand. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. How is that different? Is that not one way of accomplishing what Eliezer Yudkowsky calls uh, friendly AI? These yeah, uh, provably safe but, mathematical systems? Well, there, there's the safety aspect, but I think that's really only one piece of friendliness. Um, friendliness, I mean, really we want these things to reflect human values. And more than that, you know, I mean, you look at, at today's consumer uh, society, in many ways, we're getting a lot of what we wanted hundreds of years ago. Incredible wealth, incredible access to food, and yet many people are not happy. You know, a quarter of the population suffered a, a mental illness last year. Uh, huge rates of depression and ennui and, and so on. And so, in some sense, the pure material consumerist goal isn't really meeting our deepest happiness needs. And so, I think if you take friendliness in the larger picture, we not only want a system that isn't going to kill us, that's the safety thing. We not only want something that will give us what we think we want, we really want systems that will actually help us evolve into what we, at our deepest level we want. And so the challenge there is not just the technical challenge of building these systems, but also identifying what, where do we want to go? What is the future of humanity? What is the nature of the human experience? And, and what is it going to turn into? Mm-hmm. And, and what about uh, alternative suggestions from uh, people like Roman Yampolsky, who is writing about what he calls leak-proofing the singularity? Have you looked at those proposals? I haven't read his, uh, his proposals yet, um, but I, I've, I've spoken with him, and he, I think he's got some very interesting ideas. Yeah. So I'd be quite interested to hear what, what he's suggesting. If I remember, he was talking about creating a, an eight-layered sandbox of a sort where you create the AI in a, in a safe environment. But it's best, of course, if, if, if you have a, the chance to look at his ideas, so I don't distort them. Yeah. Well, and the sandboxing idea, Eliezer has done, I don't know if, if you've had him on, um, very early on, he, he played a game where he played the role of a superintelligence, communicating just over, you know, teletype, just over text with some people. And the, the game was that he would try and convince those people to let him out of the box. And if they did, they had to pay a large amount of money, $5,000 or something like that. And I think he ran the game like uh, five or six times. And several of these people, very intelligent, very aware people, let them out of the box. They're not revealing what it was he said to convince them. But 
just because, you know, the, the human element is, is a very important component of this. Um, you know, people go crazy. And so we don't want to, we don't want to allow, you know, it's like the, the buttons for the nuclear weapons. We don't want to give those to people who, who are, uh, um, you know, likely to, to become irrational at some point. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And, uh, what, how, I mean, James Barrett, for example, argues that chances are we're not going to be able to accomplish this. Chances are the nature of intelligence is such that it cannot be designed to be safe. It cannot be designed to be friendly. Uh, or even if, say, you design a friendly or safe AI, the Chinese would not. Uh, and, and once you have any such agent, then it's kind of game over. And, and therefore, it would be what he calls our final invention. What do you think of that? that line of reasoning do you think what how do you rate our chances of successfully creating safe or friendly ai well i'm hopeful i tend to be very positive and uh and i certainly think it's not a great strategy just throw up our hands and say oh game over it's not gonna work um you know i think there are going to be a lot of things that come out of this that we're not able to see right now and so it's prognosticating you know the early ai researchers back in oh 1960 they thought AI, you know, full human intelligence was going to take like five years on the machines at that time. And so it's very easy for us to misestimate and misunderstand what, uh, how things are actually going to play out. And how things play out is as much a social issue as it is a scientific issue. I mean, right now, there's enormous amounts of investment. You know, IBM just announced they're investing a billion dollars in Watson. And so we're just starting to see the economic forces of the world kind of moving into this area. How that's going to play out, in particular, what's the role of this in, in military engagement? Very, very challenging. We can definitely see that there are likely to be arms races. There are likely to be multiple groups working on this. That if there is an all-out conflict, that's likely to be pretty bad. Um, a lot of the one of the analyses I've been been uh, doing a fair amount is in the abstract. If you have two fully super intelligent entities in a battle with one another, what happens? And by understanding that, it's sort of a pure kind of physics game theory. It's like game theory where the only rules, there is no government, there is no structure, all there is is the laws of physics. And to understand sort of ultimate outcomes, you really have to understand that kind of game theoretic um, situation because that's, the, that's one of the alternatives that these systems will have as they move forward. And I think our goal is to create a structure so that it's in everybody's interest to interact in a cooperative and compassionate way. Whether we can get there from here, I think is one of the, the questions that, that's out. And I think the more people that are thinking about it, that's why I think your podcast is so wonderful, is you're bringing a lot of these voices to a broader audience so that more minds are thinking both about what do we want and what are the mathematical and technical techniques for ensuring that we get there. That precisely is part of the motivation of me starting this whole blogging and podcasting is so that hopefully we can sort of tip the scales if it were, as it were in our favor, at least a little bit more than uh, with, with the modest help. But anyway, uh, we'll see what happens. Right. What with, so there's another piece. Let me just throw in at this yeah. point, which is um, there's a tendency to think about this as a kind of an us and a them thing. We're the humans. We have a certain structure. We're fixed forever. 
And then we're building these new systems, which are going to get more powerful. They're going to be more powerful than us. It's kind of like creating a new species that may make us extinct. That's one view, and that may be the best view. There's another view, which is that, no, this is really humanity expanding itself, that it's not an us and them. They are just an extension of us, that humanity is wiring up into something like a global brain. The Internet is hooking the whole planet together, and that our biology is fixed today. We have a certain structure that very, very rapidly, at the same time all this stuff is happening in AI, we're also understanding how the genome works and having the ability to manipulate our own biological structure so that the true evolution will not be of an us and a them and they take over. It will really be humanity expanding in a, in a new way. And that's something I think that, you know, we've just begun to think about what the possibilities are. Mm -hmm. So what's your take on James Barrett's book overall? Oh, I thought it was uh, great. I mean, I, I figure fairly prominently in there, and so I, it's, it's, and I think he, he um, treat, you know, represented my, me pretty well. I think he tends to take a more negative view of things. Um, he, the book is somewhat apocalyptic, in its, and I think that's a great wake-up call. People need to realize that that's a possibility. He pretty much stops, though, in the book at the dangers. And he doesn't really explore, well, what are the possibilities for dealing with this? Which is appropriate, because I think those possibilities are just starting to emerge right now. And so as a wake-up call, I think the book is great. As a this is the end of humanity thing, I, you know, I certainly hope that's not, not, not what's going to happen. I'm glad that he's been uh, promoting it pretty well, and it's generated a lot of interest. And so I think that's a very good thing in the world. Um, so it's sort of blending my natural... Uh, angle is very optimistic and sort of dealing with these issues which could be quite dangerous while retaining our sense of possibility I think is is one of the challenges right now mm -hmm. yeah I mean the whole reason why I'm interviewing you today or the main reason anyway is is his recommendation because he ah. recommended your work very highly Oh, great. Uh, and, and then I, I started doing a little bit of my homework on the topic and, and I totally agreed with him. Oh, thank you. Uh, and so we end up discussing this today. Yeah. Uh, but but let me throw in another issue here. And that's, uh, you know, I, I've interviewed people like a uh, science fiction uh, writer who is a former Carnegie Mellon roboticist, uh, Daniel Wilson. I've okay. also interviewed uh, Marvin Minsky, and here's two things that I want to bring into our conversation. So, yes. Daniel wrote a book called Robopocalypse, a uh, fantastic book. It should be coming next year as a Steven Spielberg movie. Oh, great. Uh, but he also wrote uh, other humorous books, uh, such as How to Survive a Robot Uprising. Okay. And so one of the things was... Uh, how do you escape when a Terminator robot approaches? Basically, you get up and walk very slowly. That was one of his uh, ways to, to, to survive. You just get up and walk very slowly. And especially if there's a stairs, you walk up the stairs, you walk down the stairs, you're perfectly safe. Right? In other words, in, for him, that was a humorous way of saying we are very, very, very far from any of those possibilities going into reality. Right. Mm -hmm. um, then Marvin Minsky shocked me during the interview with him by his claim that we have hardly made any progress in artificial intelligence whatsoever for the last 20 or 30 years. For him, all the progress that then I counter sort of argued that, you know, what about Google self-driving cars? What about Watson? What about Deep Blue, etc.? And he was 
those are all examples of highly narrow AI. They're nothing like the artificial general intelligence that we're supposed to be building. And nobody's really made any progress according to him or is even doing any work because there's hardly any financing or funding for work in artificial general intelligence. And therefore he claimed that we haven't really made any uh, substantial progress in artificial general intelligence. So is that true? Have we or have we not made any progress? Well, I mean, it's a mixed thing. And the whole field is quite funny in that um, I believe that these core rational economic agent uh, ideas are really sufficient to, uh, to do these problems if we can make them computationally tractable. And uh, within them, for instance, is Bayesian learning. And uh, in the whole field of learning, which is sort of I was uh, closest to, there were the early ideas about how learning should work, that people had these very complicated heuristics and so on. And then people started building artificial neural networks, initially in a kind of um, heuristic way. So they would uh, you know, make systems that look sort of like they thought brains might work and then find ways to tune the parameters. And then gradually people began to realize, oh, really, this is just Bayesian statistics in, in disguise. And more recent learning systems have actually taken the Bayesian view very, very, uh, concretely and realize that, oh my God, all of this is really just a computational implementation of these Bayesian ideas that really were, you know, they're implicit in the original economics equations for rational action. And so, um, so it's sort of a funny, funny field. The, there's a lot of, you know, politics into what ideas are currently viewed as important or not important. And I think certainly we've seen huge advances in the power of hardware. We've seen um, simple learning algorithms applied to a broad range of problems and making great headway. Speech recognition is way better than it was you know, 15, 20 years ago. Um, handwriting recognition. So many of these things that were viewed as uh, challenges, very limited domain challenges, um, are now almost viewed as um, you know, just a module you stick into your system. And so the next stage, which is really being able to deal with the semantics of say natural language and do reasoning and simulation of the environment. I think that we're quite close to that. I know I have a number of friends, some of the work I'm doing, um, you know, I, I think we're gonna ease into that uh, in a way that uh, we're gonna look back and say, now, why did we think this was so hard? You know, um, in some sense, the, the structures, neuroscience is making great progress at the moment also. And there's all these projects to uh, you know, understand the connectome, how the brain is wired together, what the basic algorithms are uh, uh, for, for learning in, in biological uh, neurons. And so probably the next couple of decades, I would say we're going to have a full understanding of how, how do neurons work. You know, there aren't that many genes in the genome and so the basic mechanisms that are used to put together, say, human cortex, can't be that complicated. There just isn't, aren't the bits there to, to, uh, to encode it. And so that means that there's a fairly simple algorithm that underlies the uh, mechanisms of the human brain. And so it feels to me like the next few decades are the time in which all of this comes together. But, you know, people have made prognostications in the past which turned out to be totally wrong. And so it's certainly wise to uh, take all these uh, guesses with a grain of salt. Mm. Uh, Steve, let me, let me counter here a little bit, okay? Sure. 
what what really surprised me was that both Dr. Noam Chomsky and uh, Dr. Marvin Minsky came to pretty much exactly the same conclusion. So even though from kind of different starting points of view, but both of them insisted on the importance of having a theory of mind. Mm -hmm. uh, and, and to extend that, Noam Chomsky was like, okay, so we have Watson and we have self-driving cars and we have better brute force translating software. So what? How has that helped us in any way? And, and let me even extend that by actually giving you the exact quote. Okay. So Dr. Chomsky said this, what's quote, what's a program? A program is a theory. It's a theory written in an arcane, complex notation designed to be executed by the machine. What about the program, you ask? The same questions you ask about any other theory. Does it have any insight or understanding? These theories don't. That is, those programs that have created Deep Blue or Watson, etc. These theories don't. So what we're asking here is, can we design a theory of being smart? And the answer for him is, we're eons away from doing that. So in other words, yes, we have the brute force, and that's pretty much what Noam Chomsky said in the 1950s is the best approach for us getting anywhere and having any meaningful progress. But to break into the, the realm of artificial intelligence, we have to have what also Dr. Minsky says is a theory of mind. And that we're not any closer to. Well, I mean, it's sort of interesting to look at the history of linguistics, of which, of course, Noam Chomsky was uh, a hero in. And linguists, you know, there are many different theories of linguistics, and linguists study all the languages and look for regularities, and they built up these big, complex theories of syntax and semantics and so on. And the early AI systems that were uh, doing, say, translation were built on those theories. They hired linguists, and they did all this complicated stuff. If you look at something like Google Translate, it you know, they've discovered that using simple statistical models with lots and lots of data actually works a lot better than these complicated models that human linguists have put together. And so on the one hand, you can say, well, wait a minute, that's not a theory of language. That's just some statistical thing with some trainings, training data. On the other hand, you can look at all the creations and insights of the linguists and say, well, what have they really discovered? All they've discovered is little regularities and not done it as well as this simple statistical algorithm. And so I think there's a philosophical divide there. The human mind wants to understand how does it work. It may be that when it's all done, that there's some very simple algorithm and, um, you know, that, that there isn't this magical new theory that it sounds like both those guys uh, are, are imagining that there will be. Mm -hmm. it, to me personally, it was fascinating to see those two people who I'm sure have disagreements on many of the issues kind of ended up with the same conclusion for very different or through very different pathways. But that was yeah. fascinating for me. Uh, let me proceed here by asking you about, uh, do you think that the singularity is likely to have a soft takeoff or a hard takeoff? Well, my preference is for it to be a soft takeoff. Um, if things change extremely rapidly, I think we're not going to have time or ability to adjust it and it won't necessarily lead to the outcome, the, the, the model of, you know, what, what, it, it won't be the best extension of humanity is my, my intuitive sense. Um, so I, I would say we should be working to make it go slowly. Um, how exactly to do that, given the issues that you mentioned earlier of, you know, arms races, you got different countries, you know, the military is one of the main drivers for these things. And 
you know, drones are becoming a big thing right now. Uh, today we've got drones, we drop bombs on people. Well, pretty soon they're going to start having anti-drones and they're going to have drone-drone warfare and you're going to have drone arms races, you know, or in the financial sector, something like 70% of all trades now are high-frequency trades done by automated systems, trading faster than any human could be in the loop. And so you've got arms races in the financial era uh, area uh, as well. And so we're going to have all these arms races which are gonna push people to try and make their systems faster and deploy them in the world more quickly. And so that's a pressure to sort of get them out there maybe before you've really thought through what are all the consequences of them. At the same time, there's a greater and greater interest and awareness of, oh my God, you know, this could really transform the nature of society, the nature of humanity. So there are a lot more people thinking about where this should go. And so how the politics and the economics of that plays out is something I, I certainly can't prognosticate, but I think we should be doing everything we can to bring greater knowledge and greater insight so that as these things unfold, that their, con that their effects are actually positive. And to slow down the process, as you said, so that we have more time to adapt? Well, you know, it's tricky because we I think we certainly want to slow down the transformation of the world into Computronium or whatever it is. At the same time, these systems will help us um, model and understand things. And so it's kind of this double-edged sword. We, we want the intelligent systems so that we can do, say, simulations, you know, that enable us to say, oh, okay, this kind of system or this political structure is actually safe. And yet, you know, the very same thing that may be helping us solve the problems may be the source of the problems. And so I don't exactly know how, how to juggle these at this moment. Mm -hmm. Here's an even tough and tougher question, perhaps. What can the average people, person who is watching this podcast do about this whole thing? Well, I mean, I think one thing that we're really missing is a clear vision for a world that everybody is really behind, a, a vision for a future for humanity that's, you know, you hear it and you go, yes, that's a world I want to live in. Certain components I think most people could agree on that, you know, we sh should certainly eliminate war. We should eliminate, um, we should there's gonna be enough wealth and productivity in our future society that every human should be supported at a, a physical need. We should eliminate um, uh, disease. A lot of people feel like we should eliminate aging. That starts to get into some controversial things. Some people feel that, oh no, if we're become immortal, that's a, you know, that would not be good for humanity. So that begins to touch on some ethical issues. And then as we go further into a vision for what it should be like, Different philosophical, you know, the libertarians think one way, the, uh, you know, very liberal views think another way. I've, I've seen that a lot of futurist thinkings, thinkers are now kind of leaning more toward monarchy rather than democracy. Is that really what we want? And, and what is the process by which humanity can make these decisions? You know, do we want just some guy in a lab to sort of design the system with his favorite, you know, political uh, views? Or do we want to create some kind of a system that, that kind of integrates the desires and the views of the whole of humanity? I would much prefer the latter, but I think that, you know, there's a lot of work to be done there. And I think social media and the kind of work you're doing of raising awareness and interest, all of those are pieces in getting uh, the sort of the whole of humanity starting to think about what kind of a future we really want. Mm -hmm. And uh, let me let me ask you this then. Hmm. Is there a percentage chance of, of 
success or failure that you'd be able to give or attach to our probabilities of survival as a whole? Uh, for me, I think that's going to really depend on these social effects. You know, you look back at human history, you can sort of see why certain things happened, but exactly when they happened and how things played out, it seems to be very history dependent. And so my own personal assessment is that um, we can certainly sort of see things in broad outline, but trying to make, you know, particular predictions, I think, is, is probably not, not so wise. I will say that even if there's a, that these things are so important, even if it's a teeny, teeny percentage, like let's say, let's say it's only a, you know, a 2% chance that AI, a full strong AI is going to come about in this century. That is still so enormous. The consequences are so enormous of that, that there should be massive resources being put into figuring out what the impacts are, what the chances are, and, and, and that kind of a thing. Today, and I think that the, the percentages are actually much higher than that. My personal belief is that um, you know today's systems like Siri and Watson and so on are going to gradually in, improve, uh, increase in, in performance, and they're going to be, begin to have such economic impact that we're going to see huge investment in this area over the next decade. And so I expect, uh, certainly in a decade, to have um, you know very powerful systems, maybe at the level of Samantha in the movie Her. Um, whether I think whether they are truly intelligent and whether they're, you know, have consciousness and so on. That I think is a scientific question that we're going to have to sort of investigate. But I think, I think we're going to be at the point of making those kinds of investigations, certainly in the next few decades. That's my own personal take on it. I could be wrong. I mean, it's certainly a dangerous, a dangerous thing to prognosticate in this area, but it looks like all the economic forces are aligning toward really making forward progress at the moment. Mm -hmm. Steve, uh, we've been talking for over an hour with you, and unfortunately, we have to bring our conversation to an end. So the second last question that I always ask is, where can people find more about you and your work? What's the best place? So I've got a website called selfawaresystems.com, which collects all the papers and talks and things that I've done about these issues. And then I have my personal website, steveomohundro.com, where I've got a lot of uh, all my scientific papers. And so for things on just pure machine learning and robotics and, and those kinds of things, that's a, that's a better place. Uh, but that's where most of the stuff that I publicly put out there uh, is at the moment. Mm -hmm. And after our long conversation on the topic, what would you like for our viewers and listeners to take away from this with you today? What's the most important message you want to send out? I'd say that, um, that these questions really intertwine our science or technology with our real deep sense of what it is to be human. And that not only do we have to sort of deal with the technical issues, I think it's a perfect time for humanity to really introspect and try and envision who we are, you know, what, what is our purpose uh, as a species and, and where do we want to go? And that it's in a remarkable time in that if we get a good sense of that, that we can actually bring it about in this moment in history. Steve Omohundro. Thank you very much for being on Singularity One on One today. Oh, thanks so much for doing it. Fantastic. Singularity.